Hi, listeners. We've got a somewhat unusual episode for you today. Usually, you only hear me on the podcast, while Nate Nelson, our senior producer, does most of the heavy lifting behind the scenes. But this episode is going to be a bit different, since this episode is about the upcoming U.S. elections in November, and it's pretty obvious that these are going to be important elections, we figured it'd be a good idea to have someone in this episode who's got a vested interest in the results of these elections. I mean, I'm pretty interested in what's going on in U.S. politics, but as an Israeli, these elections will probably have a limited impact on my day-to-day life. That's why we brought in someone for whom the election's results will have a real impact on their future. And one disclaimer before we get started, this episode was published by people of varying political beliefs and is intended to be nonpartisan. If you're offended by anything we say in the show, please direct all hate mail to Nate Nelson. That's N-A-T-E-N-E. Uh... His address is 14 East. All right. Thanks, Ron. I, uh, I think I'll take it from here. Hello and welcome to the Malicious Life podcast in collaboration with CyberReason. I'm Ron Levy. And I'm Nate Nilsson. Wait a second. To the question of whether the 2020 presidential election could be hacked... There's both good and bad news. So let's start with the good news. There is no way to hack an entire US election in the way that one would say a corporation. So hacking Yahoo or Target or NASA is not necessarily easy, but it is at least straightforward. You're attacking a centralized organization if you breach their user database or hack their point of sale network or a God account or whatever it may be, you've done the job. U.S. elections are decentralized. The federal government helps out, but it happens on the state level. Often, it's individual districts that choose what voting machines to use, and then you have tiny precincts actually setting up those machines, hosting long lines of voters, and counting ballots. These smaller jurisdictions then report up to the state, not to Congress or the White House. So there's no computer network or database you could identify and say, if I take this, I can choose the president. Right, so that's the good news. Now for the bad news. The president is chosen state by state according to the Electoral College. In 2016, for example, Hillary Clinton won a full 3 million more votes nationwide than did Donald Trump. But she ended up losing the race because of how those votes were geographically distributed. So if you look at just a modest number of votes she received in, say, California and magically move them to Ohio and Pennsylvania, or Florida and Wisconsin, or Texas alone, she would have won. Do you see where I'm going with this? Uh, not quite. The Electoral College opens up an absolutely massive opportunity for hackers. If states choose the president, and they handle their own cybersecurity, you don't actually have to hack the whole country to sway the whole election. You only need to hack one or two of the right states. And that brings us to the subject of this episode. Today, we're talking about just one state, 
one state which, depending on which way it leans, might bring the entire Electoral College with it. One which, as of this writing at least, is absolutely, positively, neck and neck. A dead heat. A few votes one way or the other could swing the whole thing. In other words, this is the kind of state that cannot afford to be hacked, but might be. To understand the root cause of Georgia's election security problem, we're going to start in the year 2006 with a woman named Karen Handel. Karen Handel is notable for a few reasons. Uh, Firstly, she's very right-wing. She once claimed to model her politics after Ted Cruz, who is one of the most far-right members of the Senate. And there was also that time when she called on Mitch McConnell to step down as minority leader of the Senate because he was too ineffective at pushing the Republicans' agenda. Now, for context, Mitch McConnell may be the single most effective Republican senator in the history of the United States. The second reason Handel is notable is that she cares about cybersecurity in a way most politicians don't. When she ran for Georgia Secretary of State in 2006, she made election security one of her campaign issues. Experts had for years already been demonstrating that American voting machines were vulnerable. But like today, most people weren't paying those warnings much notice. Handel, in making it a talking point, was ahead of her time. And after she won her election, she followed through on her promises, hiring a team of experts to conduct a review of Georgia's election systems. It shouldn't have been too difficult a job. The entire state's election infrastructure was managed from a single location, at 3205 Campus Loop Road, a pretty wooded area of a college campus in the northwest suburbs of Atlanta. The Center for Election Systems at Kennesaw State University hardly looked like a powerhouse government center, though. Heck, it hardly looked like a center. It was just one building, two stories tall, made of chestnut brown brick with a steep shingle roof, tall windows, a backyard, a few single car garages, and no particular barriers to entry aside from a hotel-style keycard reader on the front door. If you were to happen on the place by accident, you'd probably think it was somebody's house. Not really the epicenter of democracy for one of the most important swing states in the country. In 2002, the election center at KSU was founded in this building. Initially, their task was simple, voting machine testing. In 2003, they began designing ballots. In 2005, they took on voter registration. By the time that Karen Handel became Secretary of State, there really wasn't an election in Georgia that wasn't run by the folks working at this place. Therefore, any investigation she made into election security had also to go through them. So the two parties, Handel's investigative team and the election center, got together at the Secretary of State's office to go over terms. Quickly, the investigators would be dispossessed of any notion that this was a friendly, homely operation they were dealing with. Against the wishes of the Secretary of State, the representatives from KSU flatly denied access to any of their machines, their networks, or their data. 
everything was completely off-limits for even the least bit of scrutiny. The investigative team's leader later recounted the feeling in that room to Politico, saying, quote, It was a kind of contentious meeting. The Kennesaw people just stamped their foot and said, Over our dead body. End quote. Karen Handel decided not to press the issue. In their final report, her team outlined in great detail all the vulnerabilities in the touchscreen voting machines supplied to the state. But regarding election management and oversight, there were just two sentences. Quote, The election center at Kennesaw State University fills a key role in Georgia's statewide election procedures, which makes it a potential target of a systematic attack. We did not have sufficient information to evaluate the security safeguards protecting against a centralized compromise at the state level. End quote. What were they hiding at Kennesaw? A lot, actually. But it would take an entire decade for anyone on the outside to find out. Election cybersecurity really only entered the broader American consciousness in 2016 as Russia tampered with the presidential election. In June of that year, two hacker groups, codenamed Fancy Bear and Cozy Bear, breached Democratic National Committee servers. In August, the FBI disclosed that these same Russian hackers were actively probing voter registration databases in at least a dozen different states. Later, Bloomberg reported that it was in fact happening in 39 states. Then the NSA disclosed that state election officials across the country were being actively fished. Basically, Russia was doing to the entire United States what any diligent hacker does to the system they're about to breach. A few months later, in March of 2017, news broke that a hacker had breached Kennesaw State University's election center databases. According to reports, the hacker had stolen millions of voter records. And it couldn't have come at a much worse time for Georgia, at least, because in March 2017, they just happened to be host to the most important political race going on in the entire country. The race was for a congressional seat, representing Georgia's 6th district, an area that encompasses northwest Atlanta, including KSU itself. Now, typically, congressional races don't make months-long national headline news, because there are, after all, 435 congresspeople in the United States, each of whom serve terms of only two years. But this race was different. The Democrat running for the seat was a young man by the name of John Ossoff. The reason he got so much attention had to do largely with the fact that Donald Trump had been elected president just a few months prior. Ossoff was young and exciting and had a chance of winning in a Republican stronghold. So, by virtue of circumstance, he became a symbol of the anti-Trump movement. Now, whether accurate or not, his win would be interpreted in the media at least as America's first rebuke of the Trump presidency and his loss its first endorsement. And there was one other reason the narrative was being spun this way. Trump himself had enthusiastically endorsed Ossoff's opponent, an ultra-conservative named Karen Handel. So, in summary, we have a tight race in a swing state between a new generation Democrat 
and a Ted Cruz Republican to somehow determine whether America likes Donald Trump. If you're confused, I don't blame you. What's important is that lots of people, even outside of Georgia, really cared about this race. $50 million was funneled into the campaigns, $40 million in television and radio ads alone. To give you a sense of just how much money that is, the previous all-time record for ad spending in a U.S. congressional race was $20 million. Half of what we've got here. Now that you understand all this, you can appreciate why, when news broke that a hacker had breached the KSU Election Center's databases, right in the middle of this congressional race, it was very... Hmm, unfortunate? Inconvenient? Sure, very inconvenient for everyone. When I'm thinking about buying a service or a product, I take extra care to check their support center. A solid customer support service usually means that the company in question cares about its clients and its reputation, and that's a very good sign in my experience. And NordVPN cares. Not only does it have a 24-7 customer support service available via email or live chat, it also has a whole suite of services and features that enhance your security. For example, there's a full-fledged ad blocker that blogs websites known for hosting malware and phishing scams and apps for all major platforms. Windows, Linux, Macs, Android, iOS, even Android TV. With thousands of servers worldwide, a no-logs policy and military-grade encryption, NordVPN is truly a best-in-class VPN service to make sure you'll never have to worry about online security again. NordVPN has a special offer for Malicious Life listeners. 68% off a two-year plan, plus an extra one month free, with 30 days money-back guarantee. To get that special offer, go to nordvpn.com slash maliciouslife and use the code maliciouslife. 68% off a two-year plan, plus an extra month nordvpn.com slash maliciouslife and use the code maliciouslife. We thank NordVPN for their support of Malicious Life. Logan Lamb has blonde wavy hair and bright blue eyes. Pretty skinny. At 29 years old, Logan moved from a federal cybersecurity lab in Tennessee to a private security firm in Georgia. Right around that time, 2016-2017, election security was becoming a foremost issue for the country, so he decided to take a look into his new home state's infrastructure. So, as with any investigation into Georgia election security, he found his way to Kennesaw State University. He started on the Election Center's website, poking around for anything interesting. Maybe a nice PDF or two. Soon, he came across a password-protected firewall for employee logins. But it was pretty clear that the server hosting the site had been badly misconfigured. Logan recalled, quote, You could just go to the root of where they were hosting all the files and just download everything without logging in. End quote. 
Logan went around the firewall, expecting to find some inside information about the sender and what it did. But he got a little too lucky. Kim Zetter, a journalist we had on this show some years back in an episode about North Korea, recounted Logan's story in an article for Politico. Quote, His curiosity turned to alarm when he encountered a number of files arranged by county that looked like they could be used to hack an election. Lamb wrote an automated script to scrape the site and see what was there, then went off to lunch while the program did its work. When he returned, he discovered that the script had downloaded 15 gigabytes of data. End quote. When Logan began sifting through his loot, he discovered that the Election Center website was running an old version of Drupal, a content management software. This was a bad sign. In 2014, in a case known as Drupageddon, a German security company published a critical vulnerability in Drupal. It was a SQL injection zero day, which could allow anyone to take control of any website running the CMS. This could mean everything from stealing or tampering with files to uploading malware. Drupal was later patched, of course. But even though the zero day and the patch had already been publicly available for two years, clearly KSU hadn't updated. In two years! And this was just the beginning. Elsewhere in his downloaded files, Logan found the software used to register Georgia voters. He found the software used in preparing ballots and tallying votes, which ran on long-defunct Windows 2000. He found registration records for all 6.7 million voters in the state. And he found the PDFs given to poll workers on election day to help them sign into KSU's central server. The PDFs contained not only instructions on how to sign in as a poll worker, but passwords too. Let's pause there for a moment. Usually, hackers have to concoct elaborate, believable phishing emails in order to steal the permissions which allow them to mask themselves as legitimate users in networks. Kennesaw State University's Election Center, by contrast, published all of that information in PDFs behind a firewall that was, frankly, as intimidating as a picket fence. We could go on listing all the other security holes Logan discovered that summer. Suffice it to say that when in March 2017 news broke that a hacker had breached the state's databases, Georgians were massively lucky that it was no Russian, but in fact a skinny 29-year-old who'd done it while he was out for lunch. Once it became clear that he had in his hands the material necessary to hack any Georgia election, Logan went directly to Merle King, the executive director of the KSU Election Center. King, who, for those of you following along, looks a bit like Colonel Sanders, thanked Logan through his scruffy white beard and promised to immediately isolate and fix the misconfigured server. But he added one more thing. As Logan recalled, quote, He said, it would be best if you were to drop this now. End quote. 
King was also kind enough to inform Logan what would happen if he didn't keep quiet. Quote, The people downtown, the politicians, would crush you. End quote. Would the politicians really crush Logan Lamb? Or was Merle King threatening him? Either way, no matter who's doing the cover-up, we end up with a transparency problem. This was especially problematic for Georgia voters because, as Zeller points out in her article, quote, Unlike other states which use a patchwork of voting machine brands and models throughout their election districts, making it more difficult to affect a national election outcome, Georgia uses a uniform system statewide. And unlike most other states that have a decentralized structure for managing elections, machines and ballots are prepared and managed by individual counties, Georgia's reliance on the center to manage those responsibilities for counties makes it a bullseye for someone wanting to disrupt elections in the state. End quote. In Georgia, everything goes through KSU. That means you need to be really confident in who's running things there. But what about these people should have inspired any confidence? In 2006, they blocked an honest, state-sponsored investigation meant to assist their security posture. Then in 2007, an independent security expert published a video where he took apart the model of voting machines used across Georgia. In response, Merle King called the expert and security experts in general, quote, theoretical scientists. One of his colleagues called that same researcher a, quote, idiot. Now, Merle King was threatening a 29-year-old into shutting up about legitimate concerns. There's a pattern here, a systemic lack of transparency. You'd expect these guys to be fired or somehow reprimanded for all this, but instead they were heralded nationwide as a model for other states looking to improve their election systems. Quote, The center is held up by the Federal Election Assistance Commission as a model for election management and implementation of touchscreen voting systems. King and his staff train county election workers in Georgia and are often asked to speak to officials in other states and other countries. End quote. In the end, Logan Lamb decided not to cross the downtown politicians and kept KSU's secret secret. Merle King agreed to fix his janky server quietly and everybody including the state government, would be better off for not knowing the dirty details. And he almost got away with it, too. But seven months later, one of Logan's colleagues visited the hacked website and found that the Drupal fix had been improperly implemented. Another expert was brought in to take a look, and before long, FBI agents were knocking on the door at 3205 Campus Loop Road. Over the weeks and months of spring 2017, researchers and authorities picked apart KSU's IT systems. Merrill King's team, it turned out, was running a network completely divested from both the larger university network and the Secretary of State's office. Put simply, they could do whatever they wished and their bosses wouldn't see any of it. 
they did have the diligence to maintain an offline network in addition to their online network in order to deal with sensitive data. But in the very closet where that private network's equipment was kept, investigators found an internet jack. It's a bit like finding someone else's underwear in your spouse's car. It's probably there for the reasons you think it's there. By the end of the summer, at least 40 critical vulnerabilities were discovered. 40 critical vulnerabilities. It's almost counterintuitive, like saying that somebody was shot 40 times in the back. You really only needed one or two to have a problem. Basically, what this meant is that for the past 15 years, all of George's elections had been run on a system about as hackable as a gas station website. In the summer of 2017, the Coalition for Good Governance, a nonprofit organization, filed a lawsuit in Georgia's Northern District Court. It named the Secretary of State, Brian Kemp, the Election Center at KSU and its director, Merrill King, for having created an unacceptably unsecure and crucially opaque voting system. A voting system which could have easily been hacked with no way for anyone to tell if it actually was. Quote, This uncertainty, which violates the rights of those who cast their ballots, was caused by the defendant's misconduct, negligence, abuse of discretion, and noncompliance with the federal constitution, federal law, the Georgia Constitution, and Georgia law. End quote. According to the plaintiffs in Curling versus Kemp, the consequences of such uncertainty were not at all uncertain. They were very real and threatened democracy in the state. Right around this time, Georgia was experiencing that congressional race we talked about earlier. In polls leading up to Election Day, the Democrat, John Ossoff, was leading in 13 out of 18 major polls. His opponent, Karen Handel, was winning in just three polls. They were tied in two. Polls can be off, of course, but the final result was outside most margins of error. On June 20th, 2017, Handel won nearly 10,000 more votes than Ossoff, beating him by a full three and a half percentage points. So yeah, the polls got it wrong. Or maybe, quote, The defendants allowed the special election to be run on a compromised system. Because of the insecurity of Georgia's voting system and the lack of voter-verifiable paper ballots, the precise outcome of the June 20, 2017 runoff election between Karen Handel and John Ossoff for Georgia's 6th Congressional District cannot be known. End quote. The plaintiffs were not the only ones questioning the legitimacy of the 6th District results. Hank Johnson, a congressman from Georgia's 4th District, told reporters, quote, I think it's quite possible that John Ossoff won that election and the election was stolen from him. End quote. It's important to clarify here, nobody was saying the final vote count wasn't accurate. They were saying it easily could have been wrong, for one reason or another, and that that was sufficient for taking a closer look. It may sound like a stretch, but to understand where they're coming from, think of Equifax. 
Many of you out there had your name, birthday, social security number, and more stolen in the Equifax data breach. We don't have evidence that any of that stolen data has actually been acted upon for malicious purposes. But after you found out about the breach, didn't you put a freeze on your credit? It was the uncertainty, the prospect that somebody could have manipulated your information that was enough for you to say, I'm not okay with the risk. If the 6th District Congressional election was run on a broken system and the results disagreed with almost all the preliminary data leading up to that point, people were inevitably going to have their doubts. Typically, in cases like this, you could do some kind of audit or recount. But Georgia was one of the few states in the country which didn't use any form of paper backups, meaning the truth, as deemed by those insecure election machines, was really the only truth there was to go by. There was no data to do a recount against. Democrats had tried to fix this months earlier, petitioning the Secretary of State Brian Kemp to investigate all the state's election systems in preparation for the 6th District election. He told them that there wasn't enough time. So, with a broken voting system, a government which had been less than helpful in fixing it, and a statistically improbable election result, the prosecution in Curling v. Kemp decided to make a bold move. They requested that the judge reverse the 6th district election entirely and do it all over again using paper voting. This was an extreme request. Cancelling an election on the suspicion of possible foul play would be tough to argue. Agreed. But you know what doesn't inspire confidence that everything was actually fine and extreme measures weren't necessary? What happened next? Four days after being named in a lawsuit over their voting systems, on July 7, 2017, a technician at KSU's Center for Elections took the server at the heart of the case, the server that had been breached by Logan Lamb, the one needed to analyze the 6th district election results, and wiped it clean. Whoops. According to the Assistant VP of Communications at KSU, this wasn't what it looked like. The server had merely been, quote, repurposed for alternative uses. An order to wipe it had been made months prior. The notion, quote, that the data was nefariously deleted and is no longer available is completely false and without merit, end quote. Did prior plans to erase the server justify doing so once it became primary evidence in a lawsuit? Probably not, but if there was ever any chance of making that argument work, what happened next didn't quite help. About four weeks and a half after wiping their main server, they destroyed the backup servers. In an internal email, one election center employee wrote to another, quote, I'm happy to report that the remaining hard drives were degaussed three times, end quote. Degaussing for background makes erasing data seems like child's play. It is the process of randomizing the very magnetic fields which encode the binary bits on the drive. It is to hard drives what a power washer is for dirty pavement.
Even Brian Kemp, the very person whom the lawsuit was directed against, couldn't stand by any longer. Quote, The Secretary of State's office had no involvement in this decision, and we would never direct someone to take such action. We will not stand for this kind of inexcusable conduct or gross incompetence. Earlier today, we opened an internal investigation on this new incident at KSU. Those responsible at KSU should be held accountable for their actions. End quote. The plaintiffs in Curling v. Kemp wouldn't end up getting their redo election, but they did achieve one massive victory for voters across the state. From Kemp's statement, quote, We are not asking KSU officials to move mountains, but we would have appreciated some notice that these servers would be wiped clean. This pattern of reckless behavior is exactly why we were ending our relationship with KSU. The Kennesaw State University Election Center, which had lorded over Georgia's bad elections for 15 years, was finally done for. Its director, Merle King, retired. Sometimes, secrecy is useful in cybersecurity. Nation-state spies mask their operations in a coat of darkness to retain an information edge over foreign adversaries. Corporations closely guard their source code to make would-be hackers' jobs more difficult. But transparency is absolutely essential to a democratic election system. It is what gives citizens the confidence that their votes count and, crucially, are counted correctly. Georgia is a perfect example of why secrecy and democracy just don't mix. KSU blocked an independent security review in 2006, threatened a young analyst in 2016, and tampered with evidence in a lawsuit in 2017. At every turn, they ensured that the Georgia public would not get to see how their elections were being run, and by doing so, they introduced uncertainty. Maybe Logan Lamb was the only person to ever hack their systems in 15 years of operating, but we can't say. The 6th District Congressional Election, in all likelihood, was not tampered with, but we just don't know. If you're a Georgia voter, Your votes over the past two decades have probably counted, but we can't be certain because there's no way to tell. Closing the election center at KSU was the first step towards a more secure, more transparent election system for the voters of Georgia, one that they could actually trust to count their votes and do so correctly. But then one little twist changed everything. Instead of revitalizing and decentralizing Georgia's elections, Brian Kemp, as Secretary of State, simply moved the election oversight from Kennesaw State University into his own office building in the capital. Now the state would be running their own elections. No middleman. And maybe there was some merit to the idea in a vacuum, but Georgia's next major race was for governor, and one of the leading candidates in this race was none other than Brian Kemp. Now, instead of a third party overseeing the elections, however imperfect they may be, Brian Kemp was overseeing his own race, in his own offices, behind closed doors, with no outside auditing whatsoever. 
What could possibly go wrong? That's it for this episode of Malicious Life. Thank you for listening. Special thanks to Kim Zetter, whose political article about Logan Lamb sparked the Curling vs. Kemp lawsuit and the story we told you in this show. As usual, you can reach out to us on Twitter at at MaliciousLife or at RanLevy, that's R-A-N-L-E-V-I, and my email address is ran at ranlevy.com. Our website is malicious.life, where you'll find all of our past episodes with full transcripts. Malicious Life is produced by PI Media. Nate Nelson is our senior producer with sound design by Benoit Habari. Thanks to CyberReason for underwriting the podcast. Learn more at cyberreason.com. Bye-bye.